Hello and welcome back to Video Store Nightmares, the podcast where we talk about the strange, the bizarre, and the nightmarish films from the VHS era. My name is Luke, and tonight we are talking about the 1973, I don't know what to say about this movie. Uh, It's called Messiah of Evil. I think it's fantastic. I'll just get that out of the way at the beginning. Anyway, I'm joined by Leland. Hi. Listeners, if you at home are interested in spreading the good word of our new supreme evil overlord, who is ready to carry our souls into a stronger, ever-darkened future, then, as of this broadcast, you can find 1973's Messiah of Evil on YouTube and similar streaming sites for free. Or chuck some dollars at Amazon if you hate free stuff. And then you, like us, can put on your Sunday's best and join us down at your local grocer's meat section for some good eats before the purging of all humanity begins. So let me share with you the back of this box. I have the I have the big box video gems release of this. And, and I want you to tell me if you think this accurately reflects the movie. Oh, no. All right. So it says... Beware when the moon drips blood. When he returns, the moon will turn red, and carnivorous ghouls will prowl the night. Lizards and worms will ooze from their mouths, and blood will drip from their eyes. Terror will reign when he returns. And now, after a hundred restless years, the Messiah of Evil does return in this chilling, nightmarish movie from the writers of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and American Graffiti. Arletti travels to the California beach community of Point Dune in search of her father. Through Tom, a student of ancient legends, the beautiful young woman learns of the horrifying curse plaguing the town, a curse that transforms the citizenry into flesh-eating zombies whenever the moon turns blood red. Will Arletti succumb to this dark force and become his sacrificial bride in the second coming of the Messiah of Evil? That sounds like one giant spoiler to me. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I think it's it's like there's a lot of stuff in there that's not exactly clear in the movie, right? And no. and a lot of extraneous details, but I think it actually captures the the mood of the film pretty well. What makes this film special is the very stylistic directing, and just reading the back of the box doesn't give you the impression that. This movie has any of that. Yeah, this this is an incredibly idiosyncratic movie that is highly based on style and mood. Uh, the only thing that I can think of offhand to compare it to is a Carnival of Souls, the, the 1960s film. It's kind of reminiscent of let's scare jessica to death like same sort of mood and then it's very similar i think in tone and atmosphere to a film called the child which we're actually going to discuss next week spoiler alert on that um but yeah it i like that back of the box but it doesn't 
fully reveal, um, like you said, what makes this movie special? Well, I think it's interesting that you brought up Carnival of Souls because one of the defining features of that film is that the negatives were damaged before the film was completed. So what the finished product turned out to be was a uh, salvaging operation of the footage they were able to crumple together into um, a cohesive question mark story. And this film has uh, a similar history. Um, yeah. So I, I want to read, I want to read an excerpt of an interview for you that I think does a good job of like, setting up the story behind this film. And this is an interview that's in Stephen Thrower's book, Nightmare USA, um, which is really fantastic if you're into these kinds of movies. And he is a big fan of Messiah of Evil and dedicates a lot of pages to it. But he has a, a pretty long interview with the first editor on this movie, um, whose name was Morgan Fisher, uh, as well as with Willard Hike and Gloria Katz, who were the husband and wife team who directed and wrote this. And so I'm going to read this to you. The, this was their first film, and they were they had scrambled together a hundred thousand dollars to make it and begun filming they were really just trying to raise money for american graffiti which is the screenplay they ultimately wrote for george lucas and was their ticket to success but this was their their first project and they were gradually running out of money and so uh thrower writes this as hike explains their troubles were far from over once the film was in the can Quote, we then tried to sell it, but were unsuccessful. Our new agent, Jeffrey Berg, who later became the CEO of ICM, told us to quit screening it for people because it was ruining our careers. Because the response was, response was so bad, adds Katz. Hike continues, eventually a group of the original investors sued the executive producers, and one day we sadly watched our work print and outtakes driven off in a U-Haul. People we never met did some recutting, scored, and finally released the movie, several times under different titles. Somebody finally released it under the title Dead People, which led to two interesting footnotes. In Annie Hall, Woody Allen shows a montage of tacky Los Angeles that includes a shot of dead people on a drive-in marquee. The second footnote was that one day my poor dad, Willard Hike Sr., was served a court summons stating that he was being sued by George Romero for title infringement. I don't know who came up with Messiah of Evil, but it is catchy. There was a lawsuit, and the investors finally got the rights back from the money-raising young guys we dealt with, and they gave it to some production company in Hollywood to finish it. There's a guy named Scott Conrad on it as editor. He was not our editor. Actually, he's not a bad ed editor, Katz interjects. We could have done so much worse than Scott. At least he was a real editor. So I thought that was a pretty good synopsis of sort of the story behind this film and how it ended up being edited and scored and finished in a way that the directors and writers did not intend. 
And for those of you who are fans of this film that are looking for more information to study for a deeper look into the production process, and you cannot get a hold of these um, obscure horror movie books, um, there is a 20 plus minute documentary on YouTube called uh, Remembering the Messiah of Evil. It, it kind of looks like some amateur filmmaker tricked some of the cast and crew into their living room and set up a camera and had them talk about the the history of the film. There's probably a lot of similar information between what Luke is reading from and that video. So in that documentary, do they talk about the title? They do a little bit. So the orig originally this movie was supposed to be called uh, Blood Virgin. Um, oh, maybe they didn't talk about that. So originally Hike wanted to call the movie Blood Virgin, but he said that they couldn't get any actors to audition for it because people said the title was cheesy. So then they decided to call it The Second Coming. <laughs> But actors wouldn't audition because they thought it was a porn film. Oh, um, no. At some point, it got taken away from them before they even came up with the title. It was at one point released as Return of the Living Dead, which is why they got sued by George Romero, because George Romero had rights to that title at the time. And then as... Hike said in that interview I just read, at some point, someone named it Messiah of Evil. Do you think it's a good title? I think Messiah of Evil is a fine title. I don't, I'm not going to say it's the best, but it matches the plot. Oh, see, I actually don't think it does. I mean, I like it. I think it's really catchy, but I think it's a little misleading. Well, okay. The title is more accurate to what the intended finished film was supposed to be. Okay, that I could buy that. But as we will later discuss, the ending is what was left unfinished on Messiah of Evil. Basically, the penultimate scene that was supposed to link all of the story elements together. That is what they were unable to film. All right, so I think that's plenty of buildup. Uh, before we get to the trailer and the plot... Who would you recommend this movie to, Leland? Who would I recommend this film to? Well, compared to our recent entries, such wonders as a one-man show featuring a serial killer with an ocular art fetish, a sexually charged teenage fever dream that nobody can find uh, except on very rare VHS copies, and um, a pretentious post-apocalyptic hardcore pornographic film. Um, I would say that we could actually recommend this film, unlike those episodes, to normal people. Like, Messiah actually has a traditional plot structure with both character and plot development. There's a buildup of drama, there's a climax, and there's kind of a resolution so i would recommend this to anyone who has the attention span for older horror films and especially to anyone who's a fan of lovecraft because there's there's cult conspiracies there's bizarre phenomenons and there's this like vague and comprehensible threat to humankind yeah hike um hike was openly open about his 
inspiration from Lovecraft. But I do not think a quote-unquote normal person could sit through this movie. Maybe I'm not giving them enough credit. I know my my wife has never made it through the whole thing. But that, I mean... How is she going to make it through Possession, but not this? <laughs> I don't know. She likes that movie. I I don't know. It it really... You know what really matters to her, though, is like film quality. So if she's watching something that's like really low budget and it's on a VHS and the picture is grainy and like, like she can't watch shot on video movies at all. So, you know, watching, watching something like possession, it's much more, I think it's much more easy to buy into that as a, like what she would call a real film (laughs) versus, versus this, which might not be. Well, I mean, you can you need to set up the YouTube app on your TV so you can start streaming the DVD, Blu-ray, re-release rips of these films. Oh, we do. We watch it every night. Oh, all right. Then. In fact, the the last time we watched this movie, um, we did it on YouTube, but that was years ago. I think it was a VHS rip. I don't think it was a DVD quality. Well, folks at home, you can definitely watch this in some pretty uh outstanding quality all right so speaking of youtube let's play the trailer and then we'll get into the plot they say that nightmares are dreams perverted i've told them here it wasn't a nightmare but they don't believe me they nod and make little notes in my file not far from here there's a small town on the coast. They used to call it New Bethlehem, but they changed the name to Point Dune after the moon turned blood red. Point Dune doesn't look any different than a thousand other neon stucco towns. But what happened there, what they did to me, what they're doing now? They're coming here. They're waiting at the edge of the city. They're peering around buildings at night. And they're waiting. They're waiting for you. And they'll take you one by one and no one will hear you scream. I got to say, though, I think that is the best trailer we have seen so far. It showed the atmosphere of the film, the tone of the film. It didn't really spoil very much that we're finally getting to to some trailers that aren't just complete spoiler fests. It's nice that the science is being mastered. So before we get into the story, how do you feel about the song that plays over the opening credits. There is a lot of master theremin work in this film. And maybe this is a little bit spoilerish, but when this movie ends and the credits roll, the very first credit is the musician. And I am not sure if your book says anything about this, 
but was this guy also in charge of most of the editing of this version? Like, why did he get first billing? Uh, I don't know. Um, he was not in charge of editing. Um, he is someone else. But maybe he is one of the only people who was held over from one crew to the next. Uh, that's just a guess. But aside from the score, what about the the song Hold On to Love that oh, opens man. the film? I'm going to have to look that up. You know what? Your version might not have had it. Uh-oh. Okay, so the op- it, the movie starts with this guy being stalked by a boring white ex-girlfriend type and then there's the hall there's the title this that goes into hallway little notes in my file and after she screams this is what plays so this is not what you're talking about nope all right so uh-oh all right so the, no 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 so the reason leland doesn't know what i'm talking about is that on the vhs release of the film and i assume in the original theatrical release there was a song placed over the opening credits this song uh hold on to love by elian or elaine tortle and it's sung by Ron McKinnon. And I think this song works beautifully. It, it, cl- it plays over the closing credits as well. I think that it's like wonderful. However, it was not intended by the original filmmakers. In the book that I was reading from earlier, Stephen Thrower repeatedly lambasts this song as being the worst part of the movie. And when... <laughs> And when this was released on DVD, it did not include the song. So let me let me play a little bit of it for you and you tell me what you think. I gave my message to the wind. I told my story to the sea. No one else is listening. So that's what plays over the opening credits on the VHS tape. Wow. That this film is not Les Miserables. I don't know why they went with that route. Uh, like I said, I don't either, but I maybe it's just because that is how I first saw this movie was with that song. So that song is inextricably linked to the film for me. I can't imagine seeing it without that song. 
Oh, well, um, I can. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listeners, if you have not seen this, now you can make your choice. You can pay like a hundred bucks for the VHS tape, or you can buy this in any other version and hear uh, the musical score. All right. So after that song, um, at least on the VHS, we see a man running and trip and this woman opens a door to look at him, but doesn't say anything. Uh, He washes his face in a fountain, but he keeps collapsing. And then the woman reaches out to touch him and he kisses her hand, but then she cuts his throat. So what did you think of this opening scene? I mean, I'd start running too, man. This girl has like really boring ex-girlfriend vibes. Get away from her. She's going to put you to sleep talking about her cat. Well, but it doesn't relate to the rest of the movie, right? Uh, Sort of does, loosely. I mean, that's going to be the theme of this film. Everything is loosely connected. I thought you were going to say that all the women run away from their boyfriend. Oh, I mean. Because they kind of do. I mean, in this case, the boyfriend's running from her, right? Oh, yeah, okay. Um, (laughs) Anyway, yeah, I don't see what this has to do with the plot, but I do think this establishes the mood of the film. Okay, so if we're going to overanalyze this, right? She hunts him down, wears him out with boring cat stories, and then slits his throat. Later in the film, we do see other people with their throats slit in similar fashion being carted around so you can make some kind of assumption that these are like ritualistic murders or sacrifices for some unseen ritual or motive okay but i'll take that this woman looks like just about every other creepy ass towns person they're super pale and they look like they came from some super hot concert by the cure or something everyone's just pale with black hair and they got like sad eyes and some of them are chain smoking in alleyways so let's comment on that because this film is not in black and white but the color palette at least on the vhs is almost like drained of color it's very drab and pale altogether was that true of what you watched no Oh, again. See, I think that's so. I think that's such a part of the film. This is going to be a first for us. We we watched two completely different films. <laughs> well, I, maybe it's a different experience, but it's the same film. No, it's um, completely different. You heard the song. <laughs> yeah. Well, that I, I think that's the the end of it, as far as I know. But at this point, we hear our protagonist, played by Mariana Hill who we know from the baby. Luke, this movie stars Jermaine. Yeah, it does. The full... Okay, so this movie has a lot of titles, and they're all in that book, right? Is one of them Messiah of Evil subtitle Baby Origins, like Jermaine's Quest or something? And no, in fact, in fact, Steven Thrower doesn't even mention the connection, which I found wow. weird. All right, so my headcanon is that this film takes place before the baby with Jermaine on a search for her biological father to solve the mystery of why he left the fam. And perhaps she can make the Wadsworth clan whole again. All right. 
I'll there take are no it. plot holes here. It, it works. Well, in this installment of the Germain saga, we start with a voiceover where she is speaking from a psychiatric facility, at least I assume, and she's She's saying that she knows the doctors are waiting for her to scar her breasts or eat insects or lift her dress and urinate on the floor. But then she starts to talk about the story and we flash back to the the beginnings. Were you a fan of the voiceover narration in this film? I was in the first scene with this opening asylum hallway and this is where the mad Lovecraft vibes start. And after her monologue, there's just this rockin' theremin solo right in your face. And I thought about it. And you know, the theremin is really like the most cosmic horror of all instruments. It's like a piece of metal that screams when you get close to it. It's really like the, the iconic instrument of Lovecraft in my mind now. Have you ever played one? No. Oh, they're fun. They're okay. fun to play. I looked up I looked up prices and they're anywhere between like 180 and like $300. Yeah, I used to have a um a friend in a band and one of his bandmates had one and we played with it. Anyway, so you were a fan in this scene. Yes. What about throughout? Okay, so this next scene I think is the first time I've ever experienced a double voiceover in the same scene. Yeah, so we have part of, there is voiceover in the film from Mariana Hill, who's named Arletti, and her father, who's played by Royal Dano. So was this a problem for you, the joint voiceover? I thought it was really weird stylistic choice at first, but I read, or it was in the documentary, one of those two, that the husband and wife director's basically made this film straight out of film school yeah they where did. they were exposed to famous italian and french directors of the time that's who they studied and i think that is a huge reason why this film is directed in such an atypical fashion for american horror even in the 70s like you have the weird like colorful flamboyant set designs from Italian films. And apparently uh, French directors loved voiceovers, especially in older films. I am not totally familiar with that. So I am just going off what I've been exposed to. But if that's the, but if that's true, that is exactly why there's so much voiceover throughout this whole film. Yeah. So Stephen Thrower in his book, he hates the voiceover and he thinks it, it is the, one of the only things to damage the movie and he asked the editor about it because his assumption was that it was not in the original script that the it was added by the producers the new producers and the editor said no that this voiceover was in the original script and i am not a i'm not usually a voiceover fan usually i think they're lazy writing but I actually really like the I like both of them, the father and Arletti doing voiceover in this film. I think it really works. I think it really adds to the the dreamlike nature of it. I mean, it definitely doesn't ruin the film at all. I just thought it was weird that there's so much of it. 
And again, I understand why the father's voiceover is there because you don't want to actually have like a fucking die a slew of diary pages on screen for viewers to read. Much better for him to read it out. But uh, her thoughts probably weren't exactly necessary to convey the feelings and intentions needed for a lot of the scenes. Yeah, it's interesting to think how the film would be different without it. Uh, I really can't imagine. I don't know if I would like it more or not. Um, I'm, I'm telling you, though, man, I was waiting for Jermaine to be like, yo, this is my voiceover. Get out of my head. <laughs> I was not ready for it. She is on her way to a town called Point Dune that's on the seaside. And she's looking for her father who has stopped writing to her. And the first real scene of the movie, at least in this plot line, is she stops at a gas station. And immediately, the atmosphere of this movie is so haunting to me. Like, it's surrounded by absolute darkness. There's wolves howling in the distance. The gas station attendant is off shooting into the darkness. And it's just, you get such a sense of the vast emptiness of the world around them. This is kind of like that feeling of being on the beach at night that I talked about last week. Like, were you affected like that? It isn't readily apparent what state this movie takes place in, but like a greasy gas station attendant blind firing a pistol into the night at maybe stray dogs is pretty Florida man to me. I think this <laughs> I think this is supposed to take place in California. Well, yeah, because it's based off a real city in California. But you know, they never say the state throughout the entire screenplay. So they don't. They have a conversation about the howling, and I, I thought this was interesting. The gas station attendant says that it must be dogs because rabbits don't sound like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, there can be no other animals. I just think it's crazy that Jermaine is completely unfazed that there's just some guy firing a gun into the dark, and she just stands there like, yo, I, I need gas. What are you doing? Yeah, but that's kind of how she reacts to every crazy thing in this movie. Mm. He says he doesn't understand why anyone would go to Point Dune um, because it's deader than hell, which I don't know if that was supposed to be a pun or not, but this is where the movie gets eerie, if it wasn't already. A man pulls up in a red truck and gets out. How would you describe this man? Um... I think most people would cross to the other side of the street if they saw him walking the other way, whether at night or broad daylight. <laughs> yeah, so he's he's about six foot tall and he's an albino black man and he's got eyes that don't focus. And the the filmmakers in this book actually talked about how that made filming him really difficult because he could not stare straight. And I wanted to read this footnote. This is what Stephen Thrower wrote about him. I can vouch for the fact that this man is always on, but his on is another planet. I called him and had possibly the creepiest telephone conversation of my life. I have to assume he was unwilling to be interviewed, so I'll say no more. But believe me, 
he is still one scary dude. So. It is really an injustice that this guy only starred in this film. I mean, he might not have wanted to be in anything else. We really don't know. The documentary I watched mentioned that they found this guy in, in an unemployment line. And they're just like, yo, do you want to be in a horror film? And he probably was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then that was it. He has a... He is a unique presence, both because of the way he looks and the way he speaks and his facial expressions. Like, he really contributes something to the film. I just he, want to make it clear that we're, we're not, like, trying to body shame this guy at all. But some people are just built for certain purposes. And this man could have had an amazing career in horror films. Yeah, and I mean, it's the it's the role in which he's cast. I mean, maybe this guy could have been a great, like, sympathetic love interest. I don't know. I um, was 100% thinking that until you told me about that phone call story. Yeah. Well, he's he's extremely menacing. And the gas station attendant sees that he has bodies in the back of his truck, but he doesn't say anything about it. And he tells Arletti, like, to get out, that he doesn't, don't pay him, just leave. And then we see him attacked. He's in the garage working on a car, and somebody jumps out of one of the cars at him, and we see his body being hung afterwards, like, covered in blood. So this is your first time watching it. At this point in the film, what are your thoughts? This dude was remarkably calm for almost getting crushed to death by a vehicle and then freaking out at some weirdo leaping from a high place. But going back to this Lovecraft vibe, right? This mobile station, uh, I'm not sure if it's looking surprisingly modern or if all mobile stations are just like, hey, I'm trying to do a Lovecraft impression or... Um, Ancient, modern brickwork substructures nestled atop the neglected ruins of Cyclopean masonry, adorned with the fables of religions, mankind mercifully forgotten in its infancy. So I think it's weird that either th these these mobile stations look the fucking same in Florida <laughs> or, or this one just happened to be like ahead of the curb or has it always been this way? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I thought that was really strange. And this is like some weird ass product placement, right? <laughs> like, yeah. Here, here at Exxon mobile, you know, we, we want you to feel the difference. And that's why we include a ritual sacrifice to the dark powers with every auto service. I mean, I don't even think that the the <laughs> filmmakers were probably thinking of, I think they're just filming where they could. Nowadays, I think you need like, unless you're doing satire, you need like permission to show off name brands. But like, yeah, man, you get like a mobile station. Later, we get a Ralph's. Um, maybe there's a holiday in at some point. I don't really remember. But no, I had no fucking clue what was going on. All I knew was that someone got their throat slit and they're in the back of this like red Sanford and Sons pickup truck driven by a very scary man. Yeah. 
So we're back to our protagonist. She's looking for her father and no one answers the door. So she breaks in using a rock and (laughs) she never fixes this window. No, she doesn't. I mean, after this point, it doesn't feel like she does anything that like a person would ordinarily do. Like we never see her eat. I don't think we ever see her sleep or like maybe even sit down. She tries to sleep. Nah, she sits down. Well, we see her laying in bed at one point. Yeah, she um, sits at a table. I, I'm just saying there is a <laughs> there is a surrealness to the way she behaves as if she's in a dream. Definitely. And it's impossible to overstate the atmosphere of these scenes. Like they're filmed in really stark colors, like Argento colors. But on the VHS, they're very muted. So like reds look pink and browns look orange, etc. We hear like the crashing of waves and there's wavering synth and, and theremin music. It, it's all so unsettling. There's a taxidermy dog and bird. Most of the furniture is very, or most of the design of the building is very mid-century. But there's like older seeming paintings and sculptures and there's, her father's an artist and there's like people painted or uh, silhouettes of people painted all over the walls. Like, how would you describe this, this setting? I was convinced someone on the film crew was trying to show off their house, but no, they made this for the movie specifically. And I think this room is just really intriguing. Um, from the weird like rod sterling like townspeople on the walls to the again the taxidermy dog on the floor that actually makes a noise as she approaches it um the the hanging chain bed i feel like i've seen this before but i can't i can't picture where i have but man i bet that thing sucks for people with motion sickness yeah like, i couldn't do it i can't even <laughs> sit in a chair that swings just imagine the weight of that thing slamming into your shins on a backswing and like all the novelty goes out the window. But unlike your copy that you saw, the walls in this in, in the version that I watched are very vibrant with like the boardwalk with the sun setting in the background. Um, it, almost like every trope of an eccentric Italian horror movie like Bedroom is all stuffed into the space with the taxidermy, the weird art, and, um, you know, fucking bizarre furniture like the bed. The The next time I watch it, I, I'll watch it on YouTube or I'll get a Blu-ray or something so that I can see what you're talking about. I mean, I've always felt about this film that, you know how, like, if something sits out in the sun on the beach, it fades? That's how I feel about the images in this movie, which I feel like really works. So it's it's just always really fit well. And by the way, we are taking so much time describing oh, what, no. <laughs> what we're seeing and hearing in this film, but it's because it's so significant. Like, it, it has such an impact, right? Like, there is no other... I mean, yeah, there are similar things in Italian films, but there's nothing in any film that feels the exact same way as this home does to me so then germaine finds this journal yeah her her father's journal and it says this 
For three nights now, I haven't slept. These grotesque images keep crowding in on me. At night, I find myself wandering town and catching glimpses of animals and faces that I know can't be there. This is like more Lovecraft for you, right? Yes. Are you familiar with the actor that's doing this voiceover? No, but I got the impression that I shouldn't, that I would have known who he was if I was a big 70s film watcher. Uh, he's a character actor. He's in a lot of stuff. So his name is Royal Dano. He's the old man in the beginning of Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm not going to remember that. <laughs> he's uh, he's the uncle in Ghoulies 2. Um, he's Ghoulies the grand- 1 was enough for me. <laughs> he's the grandpa in House 2. Um, House 1 was enough for me. <laughs> yeah. He- <laughs> He's he's in a lot of he's in a lot of like character parts in horror movies. So his voice was instantly recognizable to me. But he plays the father. Arletti is walking on a beach after this and she sees a fire and it seems like like at this point are there townspeople around it or like people are out there? It's kind of a faraway shot. For me, it just looked like a bunch of pale people wearing black clothes, but they could have been wearing some, you know, nine to five office clothes. Her her voiceover, and I really like this, she says that she's found an art gallery where, because she's looking for her father and he's an artist. And she says that the art dealer was blind and that her fingers moved like pale spiders over my face. No social distancing in this gallery. That's such an invocative image, though. Hmm. There are points where this movie borders on pretension, I think, where it's clear that, like, these guys are writing their first screenplay and they're they're doing, like, show-off-y film student things. And, and this, is, this is that kind of line. But it doesn't change the fact that I like it. Oh, I, I, the writing is such a strong point for these monologues. And in another art gallery, I think, a man comes to help her, and he seems almost offended that she's there. Like the special kind of rude where you don't know if he's an asshole or on the spectrum. (laughs) Yeah, or he just has like the male equivalent of resting bitch face. Um, (laughs) But he says that there were people in that morning who were looking for her father, and then he says... So there are people who like his brand of art as like a snide, you know, derision of her father. And so he tells her the hotel that they're staying at. So she goes to find them. And when she opens their hotel room door, because it's like it's tilted open um, or it's cracked, she opens the door and this man is being interviewed. Can you play this scene? Yes, this is my favorite dialogue in the entire film. I'm as old as the hills. Mama delivered me herself. She took me from between her legs. Bloody little mess. Just about to feed me to the chickens. And Daddy said, maybe we could use a boy, Lottie. That's how I came into the world. Excuse me. They said at the gallery that you were looking for Joseph Lang. 
He's my father, and, and I just... Just come in and close the door. All I want to know is if you know... Close the door. Go ahead, Charlie. Hard to remember back on things, but I... I remember the red moon my daddy told me about only once. Mama gave him a bad look when he talked about it. He was only a boy himself then. He called it the blood moon. He said that was the night that he lost religion. He learned that men could do, could do horrible things. Like animals. I'm really hungry. I've got the munchies. <laughs> Shut up. Go ahead, Charlie. What about the moon? A hundred years ago, the moon started turning red up in the sky and things began to happen. It was like the red of the moon got up there. The closer the people were being jerked toward hell. Well, the people started bleeding out of control. They found children eating raw meat. It was like the town was festering with a, an open sore. Until the night that they, until the night they came down out of the canyon. And... Who came down, Charlie? I gotta go. So let's talk about each character in this scene. So Charlie is the guy being interviewed. He's the one with the wonderful monologue. The man who said shut up is Tom. There's a dark-haired woman who is one of his, he calls them traveling companions in an ironic way. She is Laura. And then there is a younger blonde woman who was the one he told to shut up in that scene. And her name is Tony. And Tony acts kind of like a child. Right. And he berates her like a child. She's um, like the Lolita stereotype. Yeah. Yeah, so I think it's I think it's important to talk about the actor who plays Tom a little bit. Is it Tom or Thom? It's well, they say Tom in the movie. Yeah, it has a silent H. So but, regal. Well, short for Thomas, right? M maybe. But <laughs> he's he's played by Michael Greer. Are you familiar with this guy at all? He looks really familiar, but I looked through the filmography and I haven't seen anything he's in. Well, this was the first movie in which he played a man. Traditionally, he played drag queen roles. Well, then. So one thing the editor was talking about in the thrower book was he wasn't sure what the intended relationship was between Tom and his two traveling companions. The way he says traveling companions suggests that it's a sexual relationship. But in that case, the editor was like, why did they cast Michael Greer? Because everyone would have been familiar with him as like a gay symbol at the time, which would have been really odd um, when this movie was filmed. So Anyway, what do you feel about his performance and what do you feel about the relationship? Uh, I uh, immediately went to traveling companions are just uh, prostitutes on retainer, right? Like, I mean, yeah, this guy's dressed like Doctor Who, but the, these aren't like his uh, TARDIS companions or anything. He gives the impression of like a rich kid who never grew up. 
Yes, I think that is spot on. Yeah, I it feels like a sexual relationship when I watch it, and the women seem sort of jealous of each other at moments. They're definitely jealous of Arletti, but he does come off as kind of dandyish. I mean, he's definitely a, a very fancy boy. Yeah, well, that's what I meant by dandy. Very tall, very dainty. But I do like this performance. He he masters the same sort of oddness that almost everyone else in the cast does. Yeah, I wasn't quite sure what this guy's deal was at first. But, mm-hmm. uh, it, you know, it's established very quickly. Um, his, well, we have no reason to, to not believe him, but his backstory and where he's come from and why he's there. Yeah, he basically says, like, he collects stories. Like, he's researching folklore. But there is a complication that we should get to later. Yes. Um, so, the man, Tom tells Arletti that one of her father's paintings, a portrait of her, was hanging in the window of the art gallery, and he was told it wasn't for sale, which Arletti thinks is really odd, since the guy at the art dealership or the art gallery told her that they didn't have any of her father's work and seemed very dismissive of it. The blonde girl, Tony, asks what the word retort means because (laughs) Tom uses it and he calls her a half girl, half child, half wit. Thought that was kind of clever, if mean. Bodied. So I don't remember what this is, but my next thing in my note says, the drunk guy, play this scene. <laughs> okay. I know what you're talking about. Is this the, is this the same guy that was being interviewed before? Yes. He, he meets Jermaine under the stairs. Right. After she's leaving. So Jermaine is leaving and she meets the Charlie. She, she didn't expect to see Charlie at the bottom of the stairs. He waited for her. Right, right. And here we go. Don't be afraid. I'm an ugly old man, but I'm harmless. It's about your daddy. They mustn't hear me. I got him fooled. I get drunk, sleep on the sidewalk like a dog, and he let me be. I ain't crazy. Hello, Charlie. What about my father? You have to kill him. You're crazy. You can't bury him. Don't put him in the ground. You gotta burn him. You gotta put fire to his body. So that's gonna become important later on. I really like this character. I mean, it's kind of like a trope, you know, like the crazy homeless man or the old gas station attendant that like knows all the secrets, but I think it works here. Yeah, he sells it really well. And the dialogue is delivered. Well, first off, it's written really well, and then he delivers it perfectly. Were you familiar with this actor who's playing the homeless man? No, but I think I do recognize his face. So his name is Elijah Cook. He's got a very distinct voice and look, but uh, he's in the Maltese Falcon and the Big Sleep and some of those other Bogart movies. That's what I think of him from. But yeah, this this is a 
I like this performance. So we hear some more from her dad's journal. And I like this line. He says, my mind is letting go. And sometimes I make noises that aren't human. Between the music and the the writing, this does such a great job of like, I just feel like I'm in this world and I'm hearing something about someone saying they, not that they they make sounds, but they hear themselves make sounds that aren't that aren't human. I don't know. It's really effective for me. Yes, there was a lot of thought put into the syntax of this guy slowly going insane. That said, this is not a problem that's restricted only to this film. But every time you got a plot with like a foreboding diary, does it ever bother you that the protagonist only reads up to the point where it's relevant to the plot? And it's not like, yo, lady, just just read it to the end. Because I felt like they could have been a little bit more prepared for the rest of the film. If they read more than two pages a night. Yeah, I, I do think <laughs> about that often. Um, I think it's less true here because the... Like, this is not like a rational, linear story. I mean, it kind of is, but it's also surreal and dreamlike. So I just think of that as kind of like more of a filmmaking mood device than a real plot point. Overall, I don't mind it, but it stuck out to me. I mind it when the plot is more rational and about, like, (laughs) you know, solving a mystery. Yeah, yeah. The next morning when she wakes up, we see that the people from the hotel, Tom, Laura, and Tony, have come into the apartment. And she's like, they're like, they, we didn't want to wake you. Um, you're very pretty when you sleep. <laughs> like, super creepy, right? Like, is the screenplay trying to frame this guy like a ladies' man? Because, like, I don't know if the script is failing at that or if a ladies' man in the 70s was just, like, a a fucking creep in in any other time period. (laughs) Well, I don't think he's supposed to be, like, a successful ladies' man because at least at this point, Arletti still seems kind of bothered by this. So he's like a YouTube pickup artist. All right, I get you. I think he's just spoiled. Like, he's grown up wealthy, and he's always gotten whatever he wanted. Hmm. So, Laura has showered and wants to take a nap, but Arletti tells them that they can't stay there. Tom reveals to us that the old man, the one we were just talking about, um, was found dead. And the police came, and he says they weren't very understanding of me and my traveling companions, and they kicked them out. And that's why they're there, uh, trying to stay with Arletti. The police think the old man was killed by dogs because they found his body half-eaten. Even though we don't see this, I can visualize it, and it's really evocative and effective. Like, I wouldn't say that I'm scared at this point in the movie, but maybe disquieted would be a good description or unnerved. I knew when that guy walked around the corner out of the shot that we weren't going to see him again. Yeah, I I didn't think we would either. She lets them stay. Yeah, they they're they're around the this table looking like the world's worst D&D party. 
Yeah, and this is where she like tries to get to know them. Tom says he's from Portugal and that he has a castle there. But that seems to be a lie because then Laura says that he told her he was from Spain. And so we're not sure if we can trust Tom or not. But this is where he says that he's interested in the story of the Blood Moon, that he collects stories. Laura, he says that Laura is um, a model who specializes in exotic poses with snakes. And Laura responds or retorts that Tom likes to be clever when he's trying to get into somebody's pants. And then she starts to say to Arletty, like, when you go to bed with him tonight, and she's clearly, like, bitter. But then Tom, again, asserting, like, his patriarchal attitude, uh, tells Laura that he's tired of having to apologize for her. So what was your what was your read on Tom and his dynamic with the women at this point? You know, they're they're just trying to keep someone from stepping up on their man. You know, two two three's a crowd already, man. What's four? Yeah, we can I, I think that's true. That's the sentiment I get. But we learn in voiceover that Tom thinks Arletty's father might know something about the Blood Moon, and that's why they're there in this town. They're not fans of his art. They're looking for for him to learn about the Blood Moon. We see again, up close more, like a fire on the beach, and there's a group of people, and we don't know what they're doing, right? Yeah, no, we have no clue. We get a very odd attempted seduction scene where Tom tells Arletty that his zipper is stuck, the zipper on the side of his vest, and that he needs his her help because his traveling companions are angry with him. They get mad when he gets interested in strange women. Shermaine's reaction is like the non- vocal epitome of that cliche of uh you know i wouldn't sleep with you or the if you were the last man on earth except it's like you know i wouldn't sleep with you if you were the last man in a cursed hellscape full of cultists and undead like <laughs> well she does unzip him though and yeah, tells him to get that get out well actually her body language tells her to get out yeah, she tells him good night, but he pulls her into a hug and he says, You don't just unzip a man and say good night. God. So then he kisses her hand, but yeah, they go their separate ways. There's no there's no uh mutual sleep here. Laura tells Tony that um who's taking a bath that she's she's leaving. Um she's tired of Tom in this place and she says he he didn't get lost you know he came here on purpose and tony's trying to get her to stay and she says you could learn to body surf <laughs> um but laura calls tony a kid and tony does look pretty young like maybe late teens tony asks if laura will leave her some dope which laura agrees to do but laura walks because she already tried the car and there were no keys. And as she walks, there's no music, just crickets and waves and howling and, you know, the natural sounds around her. 
that quiet is so eerie. Like, we're not used to having that quiet in a film. No, and it's very effective. Extremely. I mean, the only thing I think comparable to it is, like, David Lynch will allow periods with no music, but there's always white noise. He does not, he doesn't just let there be silence with nature sounds. The guy from the beginning, the albino guy, picks her up in his red truck. And there's a group of people sitting in the bed of his truck where the dead bodies were before. and But they're acting kind of like zombies, like they're just staring up into the sky. And he says, do you like Wagner? And like mispronounces Wagner, but he has a very odd voice. Um, and he turns the music up. He's, he's talking to her about moonlighting, about being out on the beach with everybody. And he says, everyone was there tonight, even the little creatures, the beach rats. And he holds a beach rat up by its tail that's alive. And she asks, what do you do with them? And he says, I eat them. And he bites its head off and offers her another. And and she gets out of the truck as fast as she can. Albino man blasting Wagner from his truck stolen from Sanford and Sons while eating rat heads in front of hitchhikers is pretty Florida man. I think this is the first, like, really frightening. If you're in the right frame of mind, it would be frightening scenes in the movie. This is why I never hitchhike. This is exactly what I'd imagine would happen. I mean, the first time I watched it, I was kind of surprised that she survived this interaction. Oh, yeah, I mean, same here. It could have been way worse. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, well, she's next. Yeah, but he seems really taken aback that she doesn't want the rat. Like, he seems really menacing, but strangely, like, friendly. Like, he doesn't seem to want to harm her. He seems like he's honestly offering her a, a delicacy. I was trying to figure out if he was trying to ascertain whether she was in the same vibe that he and the rest of the truck members were. were I thought about yeah. that. I thought about that, but he, he doesn't seem that way. He seems truly friendly. He's trying to figure out if she's in on the secret. Yeah, that's that's a good point. That's certainly a possibility. But hey, he lets her go. Yeah, and we see her walking through town, which seems to be abandoned. She she spots one man and she calls out to him and he just ignores her. And so she follows him into a supermarket. This is the second scene in the movie that's really famous. I mean, as far as anything from this movie is famous, I think it's well known and it's really effective. Yes, this is some great Ralph's product placement coming up. Well, once we get past the Ralph sign and into the store, which is it's surely closed, but the lights are on. And as she walks around inside the store, she starts to see more and more people. Like she just sees a glimpse of them as they pass a shelf or peek into an aisle until she sees a whole group of them leaning over the freezer and eating the raw meat. Have they you ever 
been to Walmart at three in the morning? I've been late. I don't know about three, but this is a very relatable situation where the store is almost empty, but not empty enough when you start seeing these weird people. I love the way it's done, though, where it's almost as if the people like it's almost as if when she goes into the store, it really is empty. And then the people magically populate Hmm. the building as she moves around. I didn't think of it like that, but there's definitely precedent. They spot her and they just stare and she starts to run and then they start to chase her. They don't run like zombies or really look like zombies. Like they just look like pale hypnotized people sort of. She can't get out because the door is locked and they finally catch her and push her to the floor and they seem to be eating her. Uh, She screams and we don't see anything, but it's still really frightening. Like this is an outstanding scene. This is one of my favorite scenes in horror movies ever. This is the single most unnerving scene in the film. And I think it's in part that I mean, obviously it requires the suspension of belief, but you can actually imagine something like this happening in real terms. Like there's no crazy soundtrack. All you have is like some soft jazz playing over supermarket speakers. And these are just ordinary looking people. They look like they just got off their shift at work or, uh, you know, they just came home from school and they just decide to get some raw meat to eat. And then they see raw meat walk in the door. And the sound design is amazing because she's wearing high heels and you hear her clicking, running through the store. And these guys in loafers have their rubber like squeaking against the tile. Like what would actually happen if you were to run on that kind of surface? Right. And it all gives a very, a very serious gravity to the scene. I also wonder if there's any like, satire going on here like uh dawn of the dead gets a lot of credit for its image of zombies shuffling through malls like you know zombie consumers there's certainly just as much of that here I, i don't know if it's meant satirically but it is a i think arresting image like it's powerful to see people just shuffling through a supermarket you know, like people kind of actually do. Well, I mean, the pro the protag and and her D and D party look like a bunch of hippies and like uh, and hipsters, right? So maybe they're like slowly getting devoured by the normal nine to five working class people who are rejecting their their traveling companion lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think you need all that to enjoy this film, but it's oh, there if no. you want it. <laughs> no, for sure. Yeah, this film works on, on different levels, I think, as long as you have patience for it. In the next scene, Tony is freaking out to Tom because she's trying to get a radio station and she can't get anything except one station from I- Idaho. Yeah, that's how you know this town is cursed beyond redemption. <laughs> yeah, she's like, why the fuck Idaho? Um <laughs> She wants to leave. 
this town. She says she's scared, but she doesn't know of what. And Tom seems kind of genuinely upset that Laura has left. Yeah. This is where I really started to notice that all over the apartment, there are these people painted on the walls and that they're always watching and it's really unsettling like there's a scene where Arletti gets frightened by one and there's another scene where Tony is trying to take a nap and she keeps turning different ways but every way she turns one is facing her and like creeping her out it's a brilliant I mean we talked about this earlier but it's a brilliant set design idea yeah, I mean, would someone actually paint their room like this? I mean, maybe if they had, like, an exhibition fetish. <laughs> well, no, but remember, like, it. her father could have painted these while he was going insane. Oh, yeah. Think about, like, it mirrors the way that the the people who we talked about all being dressed in black and white staring at uh, Laura in the grocery store, right? But... It's the same way these paintings stare out from the walls. So he could have been painting people as he was seeing them. Yeah, I didn't think about, uh, you know, I, I just kept thinking what sane person would paint this. And yeah, you know, obviously he was already losing it at this point. At one point, one seems to be bleeding from the eye. Yeah, it's a common theme. Yeah, we start to see people bleeding from the eye. And that's what the, the cover of the VHS is. Someone screaming dramatically, which does not happen too much in this movie, but uh, she is also bleeding from the eye. So at this point, we really begin to hear Arletti and her father's voiceover, like, blending together. I took this as, like, both of them are experiencing the same thing where they're losing control and they're beginning to be taken over by sort of a mysterious evil. She goes to Tom's room, and he tells her that he thinks she should leave Point Dune. And Tony gets mad because they're keeping her awake. But at this point, someone calls Arletti, and the police say that they've um, found her father and that he was crushed under a huge sculpture he was working on on the beach. And so they, Tom and Arletti go out, uh, but Arletti says this is not her father, that she can tell because of the hand, that her father's hands were feminine, I think she says, and this, this man's hands are like coarse and rough. What do you think about the scene on the beach? A uh, tragic way to go out, having a children's playground collapse on you oh yeah for sure <laughs> uh, this this is the point where if you didn't already think shit was real now you know law enforcement is in on it like trying to stage right. murders to get you to leave right yeah they i mean everyone wants her out of this town for sure and it is interesting that tom is also telling her to leave which is weird because he seems to want to seduce her. So that just casts more doubt on Tom's story, I think. But during the beach scene, we get part of a voiceover from her father. And I love this. It says, if the cities of the world were destroyed tomorrow, they would all be rebuilt to look like Point Dune, entirely normal 
quiet, silent because of the shared horror. I know what's hiding beneath its stucco skin. This is wonderful voiceover. You know, normally voiceover is not that great, but it is so excusable when this is the caliber of writing. But the the image of like town after town being rebuilt to look like Point Dune really reminds me of like the the Phantasm franchise. Um, I don't know if you've seen all those, but that becomes like the the ongoing story. I believe I've only seen the first one. I, the first one we're gonna have to do at some point is one of my all time favorite films. The second one's good, but like totally different. After that, I think they get pretty bad. I know they have their fans, but it in contrast to this movie, Messiah of Evil, that's a case where Don Coscarelli kept trying to explain more and more. And I think the better thing would to be would be to have left it with the dream quality that did not have a logical explanation. All right, so let's get to the next, like, I think really powerful scene in the movie. Tony is going to go see a movie, and the marquee says it's Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye, although that is not the movie that's playing. The theater seems to be abandoned, and there's no one at concession, but she takes a thing of popcorn anyway. And then inside the theater, there's just a few people sitting far apart, all alone. And she sits down and the lights go off and the movie begins. And it's not really a movie. It's a collection of scenes with something called Gone with the West, like Western scenes. This is not what was intended, right? I don't know if you read about this at all. Mm, No, I did not. But I do know this is an actual Western film. Yeah, so they, they had something here as like a placeholder before the film got taken away from them. And so whoever was hired to edit it after they lost control put this footage in. Originally, they were going to try to put like an actual film clip in, but they assumed that the company that bought the film just put in something they had the rights to, even if it didn't make any sense or it was not in order. Yeah, um, makes sense. What... D- I don't think it bought. I don't think it damages the scene, though. I think no, it's fine. Not at all. Yeah. I think it adds to the sort of surreal, dreamlike nature of this. Yeah, this is great product placement for Amstar. Sure. All this seems to be happening in real time, but like I said, the movie's not playing like a movie. It's playing like a montage of images, and there is like old ragtime music that's a mismatch for what we're watching. But more and more people start to come into the theater. And it's almost like the the grocery store scene where the people just seem to be multiplying. They're all quietly filling up the theater. And they all seem to be in almost in black and white, except that Tony is in the front and she's clearly in color. Uh, she has a light on her. And... All of the people in the theater are very like stoic and stone-faced. A man sits a couple seats away from Tony, and then a woman sits on her other side, and she's slowly being caged in and starts to seem freaked out. And then people start crying blood. And she turns around and sees how many people are in the theater, and she starts trying to climb over the seats to get out. 
but the door is locked and we can like sense her fear. There's absolute claustrophobic mood here. She tries to go out from behind the curtain, but there's a man there too. And suddenly all these people are rushing at her and surrounding her. And we hear her screams as we get shots throughout the empty theater and finally on the moon, which is beginning to turn red. So what, how did you feel about this scene? Cause I think this is uh, just as good or almost as good as the grocery store scene. Almost as good. I think I prefer the grocery store scene more. I mean, it was very polite that all the zombie cannibals politely waited for the movie to end. Right, or the or the trailer, or whatever this is. But but much like a lot of things in this film, you know, you you are willing to suspend any concept of like real world, um, like interactions, like social and and physical reactions, just to just to experience this plot, this atmosphere. And I think this is a beautiful scene. Like you're saying, the color is very well done. The, the theater itself is like a stark orange, like a dirty orange color. And like Tony herself is, you know, again, very colorful and it contrasts against all the, all the cultists that are, that have been piling into the theater, you know, for a horror movie, there's not really a lot of gore, but no, almost none. It's, but all, all the violence is definitely, um, it, it's graphic because of how it's implied because of how it's shot. And that's, again what makes a lot of these scenes really effective so i'm going to skip ahead some because we're running long but there's a lot of scenes where tom and arletti i think are looking for each other or tom is looking for tony but at one point there is a scene that i want to mention where arletti goes to the sink and opens her mouth and there's a beetle inside on her tongue and then she throws up like a whole pile of beetles and worms and a lizard. I, I'm not sure if I find this scene really effective or kind of funny or both. I mean, it is described on the back of the box, but uh, yeah. yeah, you know, in, in case you were in doubt, this was in Florida. You know, her vomit is full of beetles and no lizards, right? Yep. Apparently, yeah, I rest. I rest my case. This is in Florida. Arletti's father shows up. This is Royal Dano, who we talked about earlier. Um, he says he put the body on the beach to try to get her to leave. He wants her to leave and tell people on the outside that what happened 100 years ago is happening again. And this is where he starts to tell us the story. So in flashback, we see a man on horseback, all in black, and he meets with a hunter around a fire. He says he used to be a preacher, but he survived the Donner Party, and he had to eat human flesh to do so. He says he only survived because he has faith in a new master, and that he's spreading his new religion. So the hunter shoots him, but it does nothing. And we're told that when the hunter was found, he was half eaten. And as he was dying, he told them about the dark stranger who walked into the sea 
and said that he'd return a hundred years later to a world that is tired and disillusioned. All right. So what do you think of this by way of like origin story for the movie? I wasn't expecting a shout out to the Donner party, but you know, I, I appreciate it. I, I do think it's uh, it would have been a little better if they kind of kept the actual historical references to a minimum, but uh, it's not egregious. Yeah, that didn't bother me at all. Did you notice that, or you might have had to look this up. Um, I don't think you can really see in the movie, but the stranger who walks into the sea, he's played by Michael Greer, who also plays Tom. Yes, I didn't notice it while watching, but I found out afterwards. So do you think that that suggests that there is something evil about Tom? That was the original ending to the film. You, that they weren't, but but as it is, right? Like, I don't know. Do you, maybe I should ask, do you think that we should take the film, like interpret the film based on what was intended or what we ended up getting on the screen? We have to go with what we got. We can't just start like willy nilly adding in stuff that wasn't included. And yes. it still works either way. I mean, the issue is that Tom was supposed to be the the dark messiah. He was supposed to end up turning into that second coming. And I mean, that that was like he, he talks about having dreams at some point with bizarre imagery. And that's supposed to be foreshadowing to what was supposed to happen. I am actually I mean, maybe I would like the film that way. I, I can't say, but I'm really glad it's the way it is. I love how ambivalent and confused it is, how dreamlike and uncertain you are. I don't yes. think I would like to get a clearer explanation. It's it's hard to say. We can't we can't make that call. Well, well, I can't make that call. <laughs> after after he tells this story, Arletti's father says that he he can never leave because he's already tasted human flesh. And he starts to scream and destroy everything. He he rubs blue paint all over his face and looks like a a fucking member of the Blue Man Group. <laughs> all right. So Arletti stabs him with garden shears, uh, and she remembers that he has to be burned. So she uses a stick from the fireplace to burn him and he runs around and lies on the ground on fire for a surprisingly long time. Yeah, no, that was a dedicated stunt actor. Tom returns looking for Arletti, and we see that somebody is up on the skylight. It's just like a throwaway shot. Just one guy up there always sees silhouette. Shots like that are what make, that really elevate this movie. But Arletti comes after Tom with the garden shears, but she only gets his arm before he manages to disarm her. He says he came back to get her. So they're going to try to escape together. But, and this is another really effective scene, the skylight and the windows, and there's these big cathedral windows around the sides of the building, they're gradually filled with people. And we just see their silhouettes. And then they start to break through, jumping in through the glass. And Arletti and Tom have to fight them off. Did you think that this scene was effective? It was all right. I, I thought it was um, a little unexpected that 
they mob, the mob turned and ate one of their own <laughs> when he was pushed in. This is actually really uh, clever, I thought. Tom, like, beats one with a metal pole, but then he gives that one to the rest of the, the zombies who start to eat it so that he and Arletti can escape. Like, I guess ultimately this is a zombie film, but it doesn't follow a lot of the established, like, parameters you come to expect of the genre. Well, remember though, so this was this was released in what, 1973 or 4? It oh, was made yeah. it was made a few years before that in like 70 or 71. So the tropes really aren't established yet. Like when we talk about the rules of zombie movies, we're really just talking about George Romero. You'll see this next week too with The Child. You'll get the involvement of zombies that do not follow the typical zombie rules because at this point in time they were still being established hmm, that's a good point so do you think this is uh trying to be like a um like an inspired i don't want to say knockoff but trying to ride on the coattails of night of the living dead to be successful i mean i don't know if i'd phrase it that way i think that hiking cats were able to get funding for a horror movie, but they wouldn't have been able to get such quick funding for something else. And so they they made a horror movie because that's what they could make. And I'm sure they were influenced by like everything that was popular at the time. So that would have certainly included like Night of the Living Dead. Speaking of which, there I'm going to say this here because there's no better place to do it. Um, so they went on to have a really successful career until they wrote and directed Howard the Duck. Oh, no. The fact that those two did this movie and Howard the Duck, like, blows my mind. It's just bonkers to me. That, that, is, that is unfortunate. Yeah. I mean, that's it's, kind of a horror film. <laughs> well, see, they had, the con they had the connection with George Lucas. Yeah. Because he did American Graffiti. So in the final scene of the movie, Tom and Arletti are swimming away as the zombies approach them. And Tom is having trouble swimming because of his arm. And eventually he disappears. I guess he just sinks. And our, we, we get an extremely haunting shot of the camera pulling out far away as she's in the water alone. And then she screams. And in voiceover, we hear that they'd pulled her from the water. They prevented my last mistake. Most of the town was on the beach. They built their fire not for warmth, but as beacons to be seen from the black ocean. They dressed me in an old gown. I was to be sacrificed when the moon turned red and the dark stranger returned. We see her on the beach at this point, and she's got her full-on Germain hair now. <laughs> and uh, the dark stranger walks out of the water. And this, yeah, this line doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but she says, he let me go with a story that condemned me, knowing that they wouldn't believe me. So that is a little bit of a cop-out ending. Like, basically, they did all this, and then they just let me go because they knew no one would believe me. Well, I mean, she it's too late for her. She's technically already been cursed. 
So maybe it's a weird way of spreading the curse out in the world. Maybe. I mean, maybe. I, I am not concerned with it making sense. I don't think this movie is about logic or like no, even about the plot. But if you were looking for that, it doesn't make much sense. Uh, you, can, you can rationalize it. You can rationalize it. You can say that, you know, Tom, Thomas, Tom, Thomas, Thomas, like sunk into the ocean. And then that was the last right necessary to summon the dark stranger who was played by the same actor, presumably the same man to a degree. He comes out of the ocean, but he still has a soft spot in his dark, cold, pitiful excuse of a heart. So lets her go as an act of mercy. So she didn't need to be sacrificed because Tom already died. Yeah, maybe. Okay. All right. Hey, man, we're we're stretching here. So in the final shot, we see that she's painting. She seems to be in a psychiatric institution, and we hear the voiceover say, "We sleep and sit in the sun and dream. Each of us dying slowly in the prison." of our minds and then on the vhs we hear the song again which is extremely haunting and effective no matter what stephen thrower says but on regular people versions you're gonna hear some you're gonna hear a theremin solo you know rock your world all right so before we get to final thoughts and and ratings i wanted to share one other thing from the stephen thrower book there's a point where um, Stephen asks the editor, Morgan Fisher, what he thinks the strengths and weaknesses of the film are. And he says this. Oh, and, and what sort of commentary do you think it makes on the time and place? And he says, I think the film at its f best moments is truly, truly scary. I don't know if it makes a commentary on the th on the time in which it was made. The reflex would be to want to connect it to Vietnam and civil unrest in this country. But I don't know if the connection can be made. I know the film has its admirers, but I had felt that it was dogged by being written without conviction in its material. That's really not so surprising since Willard and Gloria wrote the script when they were hard up for money, so they wrote it quickly to sell quickly. So the project began as a potboiler, and then their agent, Alan Ritchie, suggested that he produce it and that Willard direct it. So something they wrote to sell quickly, material to which they were not exactly committed, became a script that Willard directed. But at any rate, for me, the film suffers for most of it from what I will call its lack of conviction. But not in the scene in the movie theater, and not the scene in which Marianna Hill's father tries to kill her and she has to kill him. I get goosebumps recalling that scene as I write this. All right, so I'll stop there. Um, I just thought it was really interesting to think of this film as something to which the directors and writers were not committed to because i don't sense that at all when i'm watching it no i don't i didn't get that at all all right well what are your final thoughts and what would you rate this out of four ambiance is what really sells messiah of evil the bizarro art house the weird villagers the the awkward traveling companions the vaguely defined cult rituals like these are all pieces 
from the same puzzle, maybe like um, like an image of a tree or something, yet none of these pieces fit cleanly together because there are a couple missing from the dead center. And because of this, it's up to the viewer to try to rationalize just how all of these phenomenon can organically connect. If you, you know, if you kind of line up some branches here, some topiary there and ham fist them into place, then you're, you're just sort of left with this like strange and intriguing bush that represents the film in my half-assed metaphor. Just as a, just as an aside, uh, I, I believe on our headless eyes episode, I asked rhetorically whether open-ended screenplays that allow for this kind of theory development, this, um, this like necessity of imagination to fill gaps. Is it a good form of screenwriting? Like, I don't, I don't have an answer for that. I'm not a writer, but as a consumer, or um, I guess in this case, a viewer, I certainly don't mind it for the time being. Obviously in this case for um, Messiah, it was like a necessary editing issue to salvage the film, not a stylistic choice. But I do wonder if this was ultimately better than the intended final product. We started to get into this a little earlier because uh, there are plenty of, of examples in films and video games where the end product actually turned out better because the initial design didn't pan out as intended in planning or production. Um, going back to George Lucas, right? Like, have you seen the original concept work for star wars before like brave men and women like questing knights traveled to uh you know george lucas's kingdom to to keep him under control like uh it was, it was just absolutely wild if you want to go research that on your own and uh what ended up coming out instead was much better i think but obviously there's no way to ever know in this case but this is something that ever, it's something that's ever in my mind when I'm mulling over um, films in this kind of a situation. But back to Messiah and to wrap this up, it's an American horror film that feels Italian. It's unusual with bright, clean color palettes that contrast against like crazy filth covered bums and nine to five office workers who like mean moonlight as pale cult zombies um at least if you watch the same version i watched on youtube and not the grainy version on vhs um the gore is a bit lacking for the genre i know especially considering the people are eaten alive by mobs but the foreboding tones the creepy scenes and the aforementioned stylistic choices more than compensate and if i ever made a top 10 list of lovecraft-esque films this would easily earn a slot i, I was originally going to go with three stars but after like really reflecting on this film for like the better part of like four days um, i'm gonna go with three and a half stars because i really i think the only thing missing here is just like that's a solid ending, which I think they would have had if they finished the production. So I'm really glad you like this movie because I had no idea whether you would or not. I thought you would like Cafe Flesh. So like, I, I clearly have no um, 
no grasp on your taste. But I love this movie. I think that you could very fairly say that it's slow, that it's illogical, that it feels unfinished and like pasted together, that it lacks a coherent story. Like you could say all of those things and you're not wrong, but I don't feel any of those things when I watch it. This does in the same way that filmmakers like David Lynch can do, it creates a mood and an atmosphere and an attitude that really sticks with me and like fully envelops me. Every time I've seen this movie, I like it more. It very much feels like a dream. And the musical score, and I think that song, add to the dreamlike nature. I think the performances for what this is are excellent. Like, they don't feel like real people, but I don't think they need to. I like that the ending is as strange and ambiguous and unfinished as it is because it adds to the whole dreamlike nature of this film. The only thing I can think to compare this film to, like in its totality, is The Child, the movie we're into next week. So it's perfect that we're doing that. Anyway, uh, four stars for me. Ooh. Yeah, this this is a great one. I, I really love it. But I know people who don't who are like ambivalent about it at best. All right, so that's it for Messiah of Evil. If you have not seen it, seriously, go watch this movie. Uh, Next week, as I've said several times, we are doing The Child. Um, So check that out and join us. In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram at video.store.nightmares, where I post everything that we do. And... Yeah, please reach out. If you are listening to us on a streaming service, as I imagine you are, uh, please rate, review, subscribe. Um, that'll help us out. Leland, do you have any final words? Uh, you can find The Child 1977 on YouTube as of right now, and I don't think that's going to change in a week. And you know, the single most expensive prop in this film was Tom's suit. Yeah, I did see that. Yeah, crazy. Believe it. I believe it. All right. Everyone have a great week and join us next time for The Child.
Ha 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 